Test, test, test. Welcome, everybody. This is going to be the first episode of, we'll see how many, I guess, of the Toad and Beans podcast. Thank you for listening. So kind of the format that I picked, at least for now, um, is it's going to kind of be broken into three different sections. Um, The first one will be kind of like historical topics or fun facts, just kind of stuff that I found interesting, I guess. Um, The next one will be just any media that I've been enjoying lately, that being in the form of movies, comedy specials, podcast books, music, anything like that. And then the last one will just kind of be like a wild card topic. It could be something topical that's in the news um, something I just thought interesting, maybe a story of something that was like funny or interesting that happened to me or whatever. That's going to kind of be like the wild card. I'll see if I like this, this format and adjust it from there. Like I said, I, maybe I'll figure out what I like talking about and go towards that direction. But at this point in time, I figure why not kind of pick different topics that I like talking about and then, um, see what I like from there. The first topic that I wanted to talk about is the triple crown of thoroughbreds. And kind of as I roll into this topic, I want to start out by saying, by no means am I a horse racing expert. I've just kind of been drawn to the sport in the past, I don't know, five or six years. And one of the biggest things that I've kind of been drawn to is, I guess you could call it the paradox of horse racing and particularly the triple crown. You know, on one hand, you have all of this incredible pageantry and tradition and lots of glitz and glam. And there's just an incredible influx of money in the form of breeding horses and and obviously betting because that goes hand in hand with horse racing. And then on the other hand of horse racing, as you kind of peel back the onion a little bit, I mean, it's riddled with scandals and I guess seediness associated with the sport. Um, there's under the table bets. You can read all about like the sabotaging of other horses and jockeys. And then there's just kind of the funny aspect of it. And kind of, it feels very like prohibition like, but you have all the very rich folks that are in the stands and then they kind of allow like the heathens on the inner on the infield. I really, really enjoy that. I guess that aspect of the sports, how it brings in both, you know, the ultra wealthy and then just kind of the common man. And, you know, there's just this common ground on betting on horses. So I was just kind of drawn to that portion of it. And then as I got into it a little more, um, I guess the fun facts around the sport are what kept me interested. So just as a quick background, if you don't know about the Triple Crown, um, obviously it's comprised of three races and they take place in a total of about 35 days. Um, it used to be a little shorter and it's gone a little longer, but generally speaking, it's around 35 days. And the first race kicks off in um, the first weekend of May. And that first re- that first race is the Kentucky Derby, 
probably the most famous uh, takes place at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky. And this one is a 10 furlong race, which is one and one quarter miles. And then that goes into the second race, which is the Preakness Stakes, which is at Pimlico Racecourse. And I hope I'm saying that right. Um, which is in Baltimore, Maryland. And this one is a nine and a half furlong race, which is one and three sixteenth miles. And then the final race is the Belmont Stakes, which is at Belmont Park in Elmont, New York. And the final race happens to be the longest race. And this one's 12 furlongs, which is one and a half, one and one half miles. So one thing just inherently that I find really interesting is the variability of the race lengths um, and all the different factors associated with the different races, whether it's, you know, the track conditions and everything, everything like that is what to me makes it just such a interesting series of races. So I guess a little more of the rules. Um, the race has to be run by a three-year-old thoroughbred, which is a breed of racing horse, if you're not familiar. And I also like this, that it, has to be run by a three-year-old because no one horse is ever going to run the series twice. So if you're a horse breeder, that's I think that's pretty cool. You get one shot at running the race. And obviously they train before. They probably have a gauge of who the, uh, the contenders are coming into the race. But you have one shot at winning all three races, which I find to be really, really interesting. So in order to win the Triple Crown, a horse has to win all three races, um, obviously in one year since you can only compete one time at the age of three. Um, and there have been 13 Triple Crown winners. Uh, the first one was Sir Barton in 1919. And then the most recent one was actually just a couple years ago. Um, that horse's name was Justify, and that horse won it in 2018. 2022, so this year's race, or this year's race series is going to be the 148th in the Triple Crown series. So I think the thing that I find the most interesting about the Triple Crown are the gaps that we see between Triple Crown winners. So obviously we had the first winner in 1919, but then for 11 years there was no winner. So we didn't have another winner until 1930. And then even more interesting, from 1930 to 1948, so an 18-year period, there were seven horses that won the Triple Crown. So if you just think about that, if there's been 13 Triple Crown winners, more than half of the winners in a 148-year period came within an 18-year window. And then you roll into this 25-year gap where you didn't have any Triple Crown winners, and we didn't see another Triple Crown winner until 1973, and that was Secretariat. And then, which kind of in the fashion of the last series, or the last kind of set of winners, between 1973 and 1978, so this includes Secretariat, in that five-year window, we had three Triple Crown winners. So again, they seem to come in clumps, and I guess perhaps we are going into one of those new ones because we, after 1978, we entered another huge, actually the longest in the history of the sport, a 37-year gap. And that was finally broken in 2015 by American Pharaoh. And then obviously three years later in 2018, um, we had another Triple Crown winner in, uh, in Justify. 
So this is, I guess this kind of poses the question for me. Why do we see in the sport these incredibly large gaps? And so my guess is a couple of things, and I'm, I'm sure way smarter people have debated this, and these are just my thoughts. And I've read a couple of things and just kind of drawing from my own experiences. I have two things that I would really kind of point to as to why we see these, these large gaps. The first one I've got a lot from just kind of reading about the Triple Crown series. Um, in the large drought, the 37-year drought that we saw between um, 1978 to 2015, it became increasingly more popular for horses to ki- to skip the second race, which is the Preakness, and then they would come in fresh for the Belmont. So there's a lot of controversy surrounding that and whether or not that's uh, an ethical thing to do or however you want to cut it. But that, from everything I've read, seemed to be a more increasingly common thing. So the horses that are running all three races obviously are significantly more fatigued, and then you get these fresh legs coming in there that are dethroning these these horses that have won two, and and they're not winning that third race uh, at the Belmont. The next thing I think about, and this is kind of just my theory spitballing here, is you can kind of compare horse breeding and horse racing to a lot of other sports phenomena that we see. So like, for instance, in distance running for, you know, as long as mankind has been around, it was thought that the four minute mile was impossible. But then as soon as Roger Bannister did it in 1954, I mean, I think it was within like days or weeks, several runners broke that record and it's since been shattered. So that's kind of one example. But then you also see this, this phenomenon in things like this, the sport of football, so like when we see a new offense type, like the West Coast offense or whatever, or a schematic introduced to the sport, you'll oftentimes see whatever team implemented that, they'll have success for two, three, four, five years, and then it takes a little while for the league to catch up. So I kind of think that's what's happening or what happens in horse racing. We might see a new bloodline get introduced or a new way of training horses is adopted or jockeys develop a new technique. And then when that happens, when we see something kind of new introduced to the sport, um, the it takes a little while for the rest of the racing pool to catch up. So I think that's why we've seen these clusters of winners. And I guess as I segue out of this topic, I'll kind of leave an open-ended question is and that being are we entering a new series of winners in the triple crown because we just had one in 2015 in from american pharaoh and then one in 2018 from justify so are we entering another one of these clusters like we saw in the 30s and 40s and then again in the 70s and i the open-ended question that i'll leave you with is and i guess if you're interested do your own research Um, If we are entering one of those new eras, I guess, what changed in the sport recently? For the second segment of this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the media that I like, and since it's so popular right now, I kind of wanted to talk through my love-hate relationship with the series Yellowstone. 
And to start out with this topic, I do want to say I do actually enjoy this show, although it might not really sound like it. I, what I do like about it, I think the biggest thing is obviously the setting. I mean, the aesthetic of it and some of the shots and the landscape in Montana are absolutely beautiful. But I do love the depiction, I guess, of the modern day cowboy. And I do, as you get into season four, and there's no, I won't say any spoilers here. As you get into season four, it's really cool to see kind of the difference in depiction of these Rocky Mountain cowboys out there on the Montana ranch and how they differ from these Texas cowboys. So those are some of the things I just really enjoy. And there are some interesting plot lines in the show. But my two biggest issues with the show, and they do kind of overlap a little bit. The first one is the character Beth. I'll get into that a little more, but I think she's horrible. And the second is I feel like we started seeing a degradation in the writing and integrity of the show after the second season. So I'll dive into Beth first. And first and foremost, and I mean, she's just a horrific one-dimensional actress. She has one facial expression, one mood. She really only does one thing, which is go off the rails. And while she's a bad actress, when you compound that with bad character writing, it's a bit of a recipe for disaster. Because she's essentially the entire show in this cyclic pattern of doing something morally questionable for the family, getting caught, her dad gets mad at her, and then she does like this blank stare and says something like, I did it for the family, daddy. And this happens multiple times every season. And I, I, it's she, every scene she's in, it's just difficult to watch for me. And this kind of segues into my second issue with the show, and it's the writing, particularly as the show has gone on. The problem I've seen with this show, with the writing of the show, and I feel like it's become increasingly more popular, and maybe that's with the availability of information through the internet. Writers of shows are able to get essentially instantaneous feedback. But essentially what we've seen on shows is... A show will be relatively unknown and it'll be really good, have a great premise, a great storyline, have mostly great characters, and then it'll, after a season or two, get discovered by the mainstream. And then once the show gains popularity, and in this case, that being Yellowstone, the writers have a tendency to start writing what the character would do to elicit a reaction from the audience rather than writing what the character would have actually done, the original intent for the character. And I feel like in the writer's room, and particularly in Yellowstone, this seems evident, the writers are essentially shifting. What they should be asking themselves as they're writing a plot is, what would Rip do in this situation? And it seems like it's shifted from that question to, would the audience like it if Rip did this in this particular situation. And that comes off as just cheap writing to me because they're just trying to get what the audience would like out of that character in the short term. The antithesis of this mentality, in a good way, I feel is a show like Breaking Bad. The show had amazing writers in both plot and characters. Uh, The issue with writers being influenced by an audience is really kind of one of the main reasons I've started being drawn to miniseries. 
and this is kind of a side topic, but miniseries just seem to me to be, well, first and foremost, they're more digestible in length, but you're not seeing these characters and the writers being spoiled by the opinions opinions of the audience because it's only being released in one season. And so in a show that has good writing like Breaking Bad, we watch characters change and grow without it feeling forced. The thing that we love about the characters in Breaking Bad are their complexities, and I feel like that's lacking in Yellowstone because those characters are so defined by their one-dimensional simplicities. The last thing I'll talk about is a bit of a spin-off of the Joe Rogan controversy. So I'm not going to touch on my opinion of the situation at all. It's been talked about ad nauseum. What I am going to talk about is a point that the artist India Ari made in her two-minute video saying she was going to take her music off of Spotify. So if you didn't catch what she said, she said a whole lot of stuff about Rogan, but she made a couple points that I wanted to draw attention to, one in particular. She said she didn't want to be on a platform that takes subscribers' money and gives $100 million of that to people like Joe Rogan and then leaves the artists with pennies on the dollar, essentially. And this comment struck me a little bit and got me thinking and almost feeling bad for some of the smaller and mid-level artists who 20 years ago could have sold 50,000 albums, which is a relatively small amount, and made a comfortable living off of a smaller fan base. So I decided to crunch some very basic numbers. So back 20 years ago and earlier, a smaller artist could sell, say, 50,000 albums at the cost of $12 per album. And if the artist got 20% of their album sales, which is a fairly normal number when you look at older uh, recording contracts they would make about $120,000 in album sales alone, which is pretty great for a small artist. And obviously I recognize this is very overly simplified, but the point is you could make a livable wage off of a relatively low amount of album sales. And this number doesn't even include touring, which for most acts, depending on the size, is where they make most of their money. And nowadays, since the album has gone the way of the dodo, Streams are really hurting these smaller artists, and that's kind of where I'm kind of drawing my attention to on this. Now, I can't say I feel bad for the massive artists who have only seemed to have gotten bigger in the streaming era, but when you compare smaller artists to what they could have previously made, it's almost sad how much streaming has hurt artists who aren't, say, Taylor Swift. So right now, an artist on Spotify makes $0.00331 up to $0.00437 per stream. So that's the range where they can make it 0.00331 up to 0.00437. So let's say a smaller mid-level artist has, say, four songs with 500,000 streams, which is a pretty decent amount. Obviously not when you consider you know, the Cardi B's or whomever who have like a billion streams. But if you are a smaller artist and you have four songs with 500,000 streams, that's that's pretty good. You clearly have a small following. 
And then if we look in right in the middle of that range, we'll say of the, the range that Spotify pays an artist, let's look at $0.004 per stream. They will have made only $8,000 off of their four biggest songs, which is very low when you consider what they could have made off of 50,000 albums back, say, 20 years ago. And it's kind of interesting because we hear about this wage gap and disappearing middle class, and it seems like there's no greater personification of this phenomena than musical acts in the streaming era. What I don't totally know right now, though, which would be interesting to look into, is whether or not this lack of money that they get from streaming is being offset by touring. So in the digital age, are they able to draw larger crowds than they previously would have been able to because of free marketing on things like social media and whatnot? And at this point, I don't know, but it seems pretty interesting. That rounds out my episode for this week, so I appreciate everybody listening. Let me know what you think, and I'll come back with another episode. Bye.